Just a note to let you know this episode contains topics that some may find triggering. If you need support, please head to the show notes where you can find a range of mental health support contacts for both Australia and worldwide. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, Join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today's guest is Mandy Manners. Mandy is a certified life and recovery coach who specializes in addiction recovery. Along with this, she is also a well-being coach, an author, a speaker, and an activist who advocates for sobriety and mental health. Mandy made the decision to get sober for the final time on the 17th of August 2017 after years of dipping in and out of sobriety. Her story is so relatable and I'm beyond grateful that she's joining us here today. So without further delay, dialing in from France, I'd love to introduce Mandy onto the show. Mandy, welcome to Behind the Smile. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to to dive into the, you know, complex story of recovery. And that's it. That's it. How are you today? It's early morning over there for you, isn't it? Yeah, 10 in the morning. I'm good. I've done my first sort of morning things, get the kids to school, dog walked and now to work. So yeah, I'm good. Brilliant. Well, before we dive into the photo that I've asked you to bring along today, I would love for our audience to get to know a little bit more about you. So could we start off with you telling us where you're from originally, where you live now, what your average day looks like and what do you do for fun? Um, so yeah, so I am 42, I had to think about that. Um, <laughs> and I am originally from the UK, from England. I grew up um, originally, well, I've moved around quite a lot. So I was born in Suffolk and then spent most of my sort of teenage life in the West Country and then did my studies in Brighton and then lived in London. So I've moved around quite a lot. Um, I'm now in France. I've been, um, I'm on the West Coast, so about an hour south of La Rochelle, two hours from Bordeaux, so very much the wine country of uh, France, which is not at all problematic. Um, And I've been here for 16 years. So I moved here when I was pregnant with my daughter, who will be 16 next on Sunday yeah on the fourth um so average day um well part of my story is kind of um circles of burnout which has been kind of quite present in the last couple of years so my average day is a lot less full than it was about six months ago Mm. um because I stepped back from quite a lot of projects that I was involved in just because Um, I recognised that I was not doing very well. Um, So average day at the moment is clients. um, My one-to-one clients basically is my primary focus. Um, 
and making sure I cook some food for me and the kids, mm. um, walk the dog, um, mess around on Instagram for probably too long, um, <laughs> do some reading. I'm kind of doing a, I'm always doing a course of some sort. So I'm doing an integrative um, fusion therapeutic coaching course at the moment. So I do a bit of study. I've just finished a trauma-informed coaching um, certificate. So that was 52 hours of live training. So wow. um, yeah, um, so that's, I think. That must yeah. have been fascinating. <laughs> yeah, really fascinating um, with a woman called Lula Benz, who's a friend of mine. And I kind of helped her to um, a little bit with facilitating and kind of the workbooks and facilitating that sort of stuff so I was a teacher a professor at university before I became a coach so Mm. I do train coaches for the coaching of academy so that's another part of my work um I told you I was keeping it (laughs) (laughs) taking things off the list um yeah and what do I do for fun um I like to watch movies with the kids I like to hang out with friends. Um, I like to swim, go to yoga, um, do a puzzle, paint. Um, very different to how life was before. Mm. Um, a lot less, a lot of resting. That's my kind of favourite thing is, you know, going in the bath, listening to an audiobook. Just, I think my main focus through my recovery and the, certainly the second part of my recovery has been you know safety connection with self resting nervous system regulation Mm. all of that kind of that stuff yeah Mm, so so important isn't it I think when we come from our previous lives where we're just constantly running on adrenaline and we're in these really high big highs and low lows and everything's extreme just to be able to come back to that constant can actually be really Mm. difficult I think for me I've had to really train myself to be able to do that 100% yeah I think it's the thing that I work most with clients on because it's we live in a state of hypervigilance either it's through trauma or it's through chronic stress or it's through just the incredibly focus success driven society we live in you know so many of us are managing so many different things you know and alcohol drugs or whatever becomes that part of that coping strategy Mm. to just manage um and so rather than kind of leaving people empty with nothing to you know self-soothe or to manage that you know it's it's all about resourcing and for me that's been yeah it is my life work really be that boundaries or be that you know nutrition or just saying no or whatever mm. you know like it's it's a process it's not a destination it's like but just yeah. and it all plays a role doesn't it I think that was one of the biggest things when I started this podcast it's a recovery podcast but we don't just talk about drinking or drugs or that sort of realm it's everything it's everything that plays into that it's meditation Mm. it's diet nutrition like you said it's relationships looking at things like codependency there are so many different facets that contribute to you know people that end up being addicted to substances Mm-mm. Yeah, 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 big, big topic. All righty. Well, I would love to dive into our photo now. So I've asked you, Mandy, to bring in a photo with you today. And it's a photo from a time in your life when you are hiding behind a smile. So you were projecting one version of yourself to the world, but the reality was that you were really struggling on the inside. So 
For our listeners who can't see this photo right now, could you describe what's going on for you in the photo and also what was happening for you at that time in your life? Mm. Yeah, so this photo is actually one that's up in my parents' house. So it's interesting that it's often reflected as a picture where I look really pretty and really kind of serene. Um, So I'm like wearing, you know, a nice pink top and I'm kind of looking at the camera. I look quite relaxed. I've got my my hair's long, it's down. You know, I'm sat at, you know, a table with a big glass of rosé and ice. Um, And it was actually my birthday. Um, so it's my birthday 2017 so just before I quit Mm. for the final time Um, and my brothers and I so I was living in France my brothers live in I've got two brothers they live in the UK Um, we decided to surprise my dad um, for his birthday so my birthday is a week before his birthday Um, my dad had recently been diagnosed with cancer um, colon cancer which he's now clear of which is you know amazing Mm. um so the you know the idea was like right let's take him out you know let's let's take him to dinner and you know and we'll have this really nice time and it'll be really special and just cheer him up and know that him know that you know we're there for him etc um and this is kind of in my period of moderate drinking so i'd i'd done a year of sobriety between 2013 and 14 and then i'd kind of been back and forth back and forth um and yeah and you know i just i got really drunk that night blackout drunk i don't remember going to bed um and i was so hungover in that picture and what was going on in my head was just like that wasn't the way that I wanted to show up for dad you know that wasn't Mm. is that what we do like is that how we process pain is that is that that my only way and and am I still here like in this place of doing this again and and feeling so ashamed of myself and and feeling like you know I thought I'd cracked it but here I am back again and and there was a big kind of core thing with me kind of knowing that I had a problem with with drinking was the fact that I I had this understanding that if something really really bad happens in my life I I wouldn't have the capacity to cope you know so my I managed my drinking you know Mm. I was I'd never hit rock bottom we're doing a lot of inverted comments here (laughs) you know I'd managed to like it looked okay on the outside you know but it was always a kind of dance with the devil it was always like luck a lot of luck Mm. you know um and so I could say you know this whole thing of well I'm not an alcoholic you know I'm not that bad and I'd seen people that bad you know and and that wasn't me and all of this kind of narrative of why I should keep alcohol in my life um but also knowing the back of my head like if something had happened with my kids for example I would be gone Mm. like that that would I would be all of those things I would hit rock bottom I wouldn't I I know 100 and still that's one of the reasons things that keeps me sober right is like I cannot take that risk because Mm. that's my only like I'm on you know 95% absolutely secure in my sobriety other than that 5% that if something so traumatic happens I don't know whether I could bring myself back Mm. um 
and so it was just that kind of being in that space of just going right is this how I show up to my pain Mm. is this what I do and I don't want to do that I don't want that to be my story I don't want you know I'd had a lot of pain and I'd had a lot of trauma and I hadn't had the capacity to deal with a lot of it and yeah so it just, it was the beginning of the end basically it was just from that moment onwards I drank through the summer as you do you know well not as everyone does but you know which was the pattern um you know as soon as the summer comes there's no rules you know and also living in Europe um you know there's a lot of day drinking you know drinking in the evening aperitif etc um yeah and and it kind of just it went down from that point and until I kind of quit in, in August of that year so so yeah it's an interesting picture because a lot of people think oh look she looks so pretty and she's so happy and I know behind I was like I'm I'm struggling here the reality um, of what was yeah what was going on mm. inside and I think you touched on such a an important point around how alcohol not only does it numb us out but it stops us from being able to be there for other people so Mm -hmm. if you were there that weekend for your dad but then we end up drinking which automatically disconnects us and then the next day we're hungover. I remember that I that was such a big part of my story and I would always have so much regret and I'd always feel really empty after spending time with my family and my friends as opposed to now in recovery where I leave situations or experiences with a really full heart because I'm able to be completely Mm. present when I am there um yeah and also that we you know we were encouraging him you know in in a fragile kind of you know ill illness to to drink too you know so it's just there were so many things of it about it that was that it didn't align with who I wanted to be as a person Mm, mm, for sure Mandy can you tell me a little bit about your childhood what were you like growing up as a child yeah it depends who you ask um I I think I have a different um answer to this than perhaps my parents but for me I felt I was quite scared as a kid um I'm a typical Gemini basically so there's two sides so there's part of me that was really confident and like doing dancing and like performing in front of everybody and then there was the other side of me who was you know scared of the dark and had nightmares and um, was very attached to my parents you know quite um, worried about the world Um, yeah I had lots of friends but I never felt like I was good enough um I was always trying to be more um I didn't ever really feel like I'd figured out who I was so I was always like searching for confirmation of that from other people or being cool or whatever that is um um, so yeah I'd say I was a I was a pretty confused little kid um like I, I was very imaginative I loved playing with you know making up stories and you know playing in the garden and and then I was a teenager and I think like I pushed myself to grow up really quickly um yeah through taking loads of drugs and drinking basically um I think if I really really honest about it 
So was there much alcohol in your family home as you were growing up? Or what was it that gave you the idea to maybe be drawn to that as a way of escaping or as a way of being able to grow up faster? Mm. Yeah, I mean, my parents drink. Um, I wouldn't say either of them have a problematic relationship with alcohol, but it's certainly part of our social kind of makeup as a family. Um, So there was always alcohol around. And I do remember not really liking how it changed people when I was a kid, you know, at Christmas or you know special occasions everyone would get a bit silly and I I wouldn't I wouldn't like that um but it's so much part of British culture that you know I mean we would go to the pub for Sunday lunch or you know we would um everyone was drinking you know it was very normal just as a as a young person to kind of go to the park and with a bottle of cider and and drink when you were kind of Mm. you know 13 14 it was just that was what we did yeah and so tell me more about what that looked like for you at that time in terms of the drinking do you remember at what age you were when you first started drinking and how did that look different from your peers those around you who were also maybe drinking um I yeah I had to like one friend who I was very um drawn to people that whose lives were a bit difficult um I think I I don't know maybe I wanted to be there for them or I wanted to or I found it exciting or maybe that I felt something internally in me that didn't feel right so I was drawn to other people that were kind of you know finding life a bit complicated um so I had one friend you know and her her mum was her parents were divorced and you know her mum was dating a very young guy and you know and basically we could just do what we want so um you know I mean that was really young like 12 we would kind of just take stuff from the drinks cabinet and drink it and Um, see what happened basically Um, and I didn't really like it Um, I I never really liked the effect of alcohol um, because it made me out of control and I didn't really like that Mm. Um, and I didn't really like it didn't it always I mean you know when I was kind of 15 16 we would go out and sort of drink white wine and you know, go out on a Friday night and I'd get really angry, like, you know, start fights with people and just, I was super protective of my friends. Um, so even at that age, like I stopped drinking white wine when I was like 15 because I knew that it didn't make me into a nice person. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that's why I, I probably sort of enjoyed drugs. I mean, we, you know, we started taking ecstasy and then cocaine kind of, probably by the age of like 17 Mm. um and I I think I felt more comfortable in in with those drugs because I had a level of control Mm -hmm. um you know and and so alcohol really only became kind of I mean I was drinking all the time throughout my kind of teens and my 20s um but it only became kind of center stage when I became a mum and you know, A was living in France and had that kind of 
romanticized idea of you know alcohol being precious and you know attractive rather than just something you did to get drunk Mm. which was you know I mean I would have drank anything when I was a kid I didn't care I just wanted the the effect um but also I stopped doing drugs you know because I was a mom and it's illegal and you don't do that Mm. and um um and then alcohol just ruined me (laughs) basically yeah I will we'll come back to the move to France but I'd love to just take a step back into so you around your mid-teen years the drinking was starting to accelerate and then I've read about your story where you went to Mexico um, at, in your late teens and you had quite a traumatic experience do you feel comfortable sharing what happened there and how do you think it contributed to the acceleration of your addiction later on in life yeah um i mean it's really interesting i had a chat with a friend of mine who because you know we were we were really quite rebellious at that point you know all of us so i was like 18 you know we were doing a lot of drugs and going to raves and festivals and you know just quite in quite away from any normal behavior as as young people and i apparently i said to a friend of mine one of my best mates before we left i said i got a really bad feeling about mexico and she, and I don't remember this. I mean, I don't remember very much about the the next two years of my life. But um, you know, maybe I had a bit of a sixth sense about it. Um, and it was, and I remember kind of what because I don't even remember why we ended up going. I mean, initially we were going to go to South Africa, and then it switched to Mexico. And I remember being on the plane and reading that Mexico City was the most dangerous city in the world and I was like oh you know it's just like what do we do it's like we're both 18 two young girls and so we arrived and in Mexico City there was a couple of things that were a bit dangerous you know we 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 were staying in a hotel with the like Mexican basketball team and Mm you know we were drinking with them and I mean quite luckily we got so drunk on tequila we passed out because we were supposed to go out clubbing with them and you know we woke up and and they kind of knocked on our door and were like what happened and we were like oh sorry Mm -hmm. it's just we were just I don't we had no conscious awareness of our safety um you know we were on a bus and someone threw a brick through the window you know it's just like we were traveling and you know someone they came on and kind of robbed the bus with guns you know it was just there was a lot going on Mm. um and and I think probably because we didn't know any better and we didn't I don't know but yeah we we weren't looking after ourselves um and so it ended up we we were in a kind of town on the coastline and um and I remember sort of we were drinking with these guys and we've been kind of chatting with them quite a lot and we were going to go to some caves with them um and i remember sitting in the car and seeing some sort of like porn kind of cartoon magazine in the car and i was just like mm, i don't mm, not sure about this so we kind of got out and um i mean everyone's allowed to i don't know i guess i just had a feeling yeah, about what, what we were doing yeah um and so we were drinking and i I still don't know whether I was drugged or 
whether it's the disassociation that I don't remember or a combination of, of the two, but certainly I remember thinking, you know, this is this mezcal or this is cloudy tequila kind of thing. Um, yeah, so it ended up that um, we were staying in these kind of beach huts on the beach and um, uh, a group of men broke into the beach hut that we were we were staying in and, and attacked me and, um, you know, and there was... Th- from from what I can remember, which is very little, um, or I've blocked out, um, there was three guys that you know sexually assaulted me and and kind of beat me up, um, and that's taken a very long time to be able to say that out loud. Um, yeah, um, and you know I fully disassociated. So if you if people are listening, and I think it's so important to talk about disassociation. Um, disassociation is your our amazing body's way of kind of keeping us um, alive through um, extreme trauma so what happens is essentially you leave your body so people might feel like they're in a dream or they might feel like they're looking down upon themselves and actually what's going on is the the body is taking away um, you know disassociating from the event in order to like decrease the adrenaline levels in the body um, because you know otherwise you'd have a heart attack or you know you you would go into cardiac arrest so essentially your body goes into you know extreme freeze shut down um, and you have the sensation that you're not in your body and that allows you to um, feel safe well to to stay alive Mm. Um, and I didn't know that Uh, for a very very long time and I didn't talk to anyone about what happened for over 10 years Mm. Um, and so I spent 10 years going did it happen did it happen did it happen did I dream it did it happen Um, and I used to think about it every single day on the way to work when I went to bed ask did it happen should was I did I make it up Mm. was it a thing Um, even though I'd had physical you know um, signs afterwards um you know I said to my best mate who I was with I don't ever want to talk about this again Mm. um bless her she held that you know for over 10 years um but I had no one to ask so I had no you know and and then I don't really remember much about the next kind of six months of my life Mm. um so yeah so it was it was pretty um life-changing in the sense that because I shut down so much about it and I had so many unanswered questions you know I built up a lot of shame that it was my fault that I shouldn't have been drinking that you know that I'd done something wrong that I was too cocky and I was annoying and that you know I'd created this situation Um, and then I'd convinced myself that I'd made it up and that actually it didn't happen and I was just trying to get attention and you know all of these different things and all of it was in my head yeah. you know always constantly sort of um even though like from anyone outside because you know it was like of course it was only when my husband kind of we met when I was 22 you know who would be like of course you know it's obvious that you know it, it impacts it's impacted every sexual relationship I've had since but I couldn't yeah I I was just so disconnected from it um 
yeah and and I think from then on I mean I just didn't really care about myself so in terms of my addiction I was just like I've I've done you know it's my fault I shouldn't have been there I shouldn't have done that so I don't care about myself anymore um and led to more kind of you know kind of mistakes or you know behavior I wish that hadn't happened I mean I got pregnant like I had a one night stand with one a really good friend like the night before I went to university you know didn't go and get the morning after pill because it was a bank holiday and there wasn't anyone where to go so then didn't do anything about it and ended up you know having to have a late abortion you know because I hadn't you know I was just so lost yeah. at that, that time Not- so it's like trauma upon trauma you know as these things tend to to happen yeah Absolutely, Mandy. Just firstly, I want to say thank you so much for being so vulnerable and sharing that part of your story with us. I, you know, I know it would not be easy and it's just so powerful to hear people talk about these topics, which are so often, you know, people don't feel comfortable or they're not ready. And um, I do feel honoured that you were able to share that with us. So thank you for that. Can I ask, do you see a direct correlation from that experience into the acceleration of the drinking and using? I know that you said your behaviors started to accelerate, but was there a direct link to the drinking at that time? Yeah. Um, and obviously this is a lot of unpacking and lots of therapy and all of the things to, you know, to be able to put all these dots together. But because the event happens at night, um, you know, I, and I still have sleep issues. They're a lot better now, but, you know, I had extreme hypervigilance in terms of falling asleep. Um, I, you know, I had periods of kind of OCD behavior where I would just fall asleep, then wake bog kind of upright and then go and check all the locks around the house. Um, and that, that happened much later. I mean, you know, once I'd had kids and we'd moved and, you know, I, I, it would come up in different ways. So I certainly started using alcohol as a sleep aid. You know, it was my, I would knock myself out. Um, And, you know, and that was pretty much standard for the next kind of 10 years, really. So in terms of it becoming part of my way of coping with life, 100%. And I think once you're in that sort of state of it becoming something that you need to survive and exist, um, then it's, taken on a whole different you know level and I mean those years were so lost that it was all mixed up with kind of um you know drugs etc but when I had my daughter so you know fast forward to kind of when I was 26 um that triggered a lot of the trauma Mm. um because all of a sudden I had this little girl that I love more than anything and how was I going to keep her safe and how could I show up to be a good mom and how could I you know um so that like heightened all that hypervigilance and you know that's certainly when my drinking really became problematic was when I became mum Mm. a because I'd stopped doing you know other things but b because I was extremely traumatized um by that um by that sense of responsibility um and i imagine a sense of fear that just would have been overwhelming utter fear yeah yeah um and you know i it's and it would come out in lots of different ways so i would you know i had real issues with rage when they were little 
um, you know, and I'd get really angry or really lose it. And, you know, it was all fear-based. It was just like I couldn't cope. You know, them jumping off the sofa, I'd just go, like, from naught to mm. 20 in, you know, a second because I, yeah, it was just... So, that yeah, that absolutely kind of was the catalyst to um, me really losing that connection with myself which was little anyway you know both I mean if you really dive into my family history there is you know mental health issues on both sides there is you know trauma on both sides of my parents you know there is so you can see that they were trying their best and perhaps some of the ways that you know our family unit was was complicated you know so there were there was a thin connection with myself as a kid but I was very very loved um and so you know that's I guess how I've managed to always find my way back out was because I had that sort of core sense of resilience but yeah I mean it got pretty dark for a while there Mm. um Mm. so you mentioned that you met your husband when you were 22 and did that coincide with the move to France um, well, we met in, in the UK. We lived together for about five years in the UK. And again, that was a kind of, like, because he's French and because French culture is so sort of around wine being an integral part of your life, I had this real, you know, mix of that binge drinking kind of culture and all the traumatic drinking and then this daily drinking as part of like our life and our relationship and I think a lot of people had that in and do have that because certainly wine drinking has become part of our kind of social yeah connectivity Mm. Um, and wine is actually really strong as an alcohol right Um, and so our relationship kind of was pretty boozy you know in in the the early years and um he still drinks now we have a wine cellar in our house that's fine I don't it doesn't bother me at all um you know and he he doesn't drink in the the same way that we used to when before we had kids but um yeah it was it was um definitely kind of really difficult to give up on that sense you know because it was so so much part of our relationship um but yeah no we 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 lived together in Brighton for like five years and then we wanted to have kids and we couldn't afford it so I was like oh no let's move to France um I was working in kind of marketing and had quite a stressful job and was like that would be a good new plan um and then my husband couldn't find a um a job so I was like okay let's stay here and let's have a baby um and then he got a job and I was three months pregnant. So he moved when I was three months pregnant and then was like, oh. Wow. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> and so you've mentioned before that this was around the time you became sober curious. So can you tell me a little mm. bit more about that time within your life? Was it that was that sparked because you were pregnant and there was that nine months of almost forced sobriety? Or had you been thinking about it prior to falling pregnant? Um, a bit of both um, because we'd been kind of you know been drinking quite heavily I'd put on quite a lot of weight I wasn't feeling great about my, myself my husband and I decided to like do a, a year without drinking um, and his sister is a lifelong teetotaler she's just 
she just doesn't like it um which i just thought was the most astounding thing i'd ever seen or heard <laughs> you know and she's this, yeah she was like you know had a really good job in paris you know she's this beautiful you know blonde not that it matters but you know she just read loads of books you know went to festivals kind of showed a a normal functioning life but she just drank tea um so i just thought that was so unbelievably glamorous and amazing um so yeah we 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 stopped drinking just to kind of help us with our health and check in with ourselves i think um and i loved it i just i just really enjoyed that different life of kind of getting up on a saturday morning and going to the farmers market and buying nice food and just never being hung over i just really enjoyed sort of connecting with my partner in a way that wasn't you know partying and and then i got pregnant um and so i didn't drink at all um and i think i i yeah i could have carried on really but i just never considered it at that point and then i remember when i got home from the hospital with my daughter um i was given like a, a really nice glass of wine and it just like calmed ev- all the stress mm. um and that was it really it was pretty pro- problematic from that moment on you know even when breastfeeding and and things like that I've, you know there's a lot of things i wish i hadn't done mm. you know mm. um that time but i suppose it was that familiarity of having that coping mechanism that you 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 know works yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah um so you know there's there's nothing i can do about that Mm. that time so just have to be really kind to myself and remember that i was yeah i was struggling you know i was i was a wounded person and you know, I did the best with what I could at the time. I didn't know any better at the time. That's exactly um, no one right. had ever talked to me about trauma. No one had. I didn't have any support. I hadn't had any therapy. I, you know, hadn't had any medication. Probably been depressed my whole mm. life. You know, mm. so mm. like I've, I can only like try and you know be show up as the best mum I can now, and you know, and and keep learning really. Absolutely. Um, and so, how many years was it before? And now I'm using air quotes, the crash that you speak about, that period of 2010 to 2013 where um, you were experiencing panic attacks and depression. Can you tell mm. me more about that and what led up to that? Mm. Yeah, so I had my daughter in 2006, my son in 2008, so they're 19 months apart. Um, and I found the transition from one child to two child two children really difficult um and again I was just really struggling in in thinking that I wasn't doing a good job um and then I thought like you know and intellectually like I thought I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and then as a stay-at-home mom I just really struggled with not feeling nourished intellectually um so I went back to work and it kind of went from like, yeah, okay, maybe I could do a couple of classes to, you know, getting a pretty much like, yeah, three quarters of a week. So about 20, 25 hours teaching um, in a prestigious kind of university, um, 
teaching in a business school and then from there I kind of um, did really well really quickly in my job and got offered you know a permanent faculty place at the university so you know was teaching full-time but also had um, you know I was the first year um, coordinator so I was coordinating like 30 teachers over two campuses rewriting the whole of the first year program absolutely loved it loved being in front of the students felt young again felt like I you know meant something um, and had loads of friends so it's like I'd gone from this place of like I don't know what I'm doing I'm a stay-at-home mum and this is really hard to like oh this feels not you know back to me that's what it felt like back Mm. to me and part of that back to me was going to the bar with my colleagues after work you know so we'd have our day and then it'd be like let's go for a beer um so you know and some of those people have now had to really reassess their drinking too right so we kind of met this perfect storm of kind of mates and it was like talking about music and going to festivals and you know we were acting like we were 18 again mm-hmm. you know seeing the students like hey we were like the cool teachers you know <laughs> um and so yeah and so from that point i mean like French, well, Belgian beer is very strong. So you'd be going to the bar and having like three pints of like very strong beer. And then I'd be like going home, you know, to get the kids. Mm. Um, And then like putting the kids to, my husband worked away a lot. So I was often on my own. And because it was like a corporate business school, you know, I'd be in heels and a suit. So I'd like, you know, I mean, it was just looking back, I'd walk take the kids to school I was exhausted by the time I started the day basically <laughs> you know two kids under five you know get them to nursery school then in my heels like run to work teach all day standing up animating you know giving them my best um and then you know going for a couple of drinks with my colleagues um, then running back to get the kids in my heels then like feeding them you know answering their needs putting them in bed and then like uh, sink in a chair glass of wine and that's what became the routine you know so it went from drinking problematically binge drinking you know when I went back to England or when it was a big night to drinking after work then drinking when the kids gone to bed on my own you know a bottle of red wine Mm. um, not eating because of course you know like who would eat when you could save the calories for wine yep. and, mm, um, so when did the panic attacks start so yeah so then around that time so I wasn't sleeping at all um so I would kind of knock myself out with um with alcohol um and then wake up at like four in the morning you know mm. in a panic attack or um and then like panic attacks at work um and just getting more and more overwhelmed more and more burnt out um and then um I went to a music festival with a friend of mine um and we took something I don't know what it was um but it was a lot stronger than we thought it was and I woke up in the kind of A&E tent not remembering how I got there Mm. you know as a you know 30 year old because because I was I had my kids young you know all of the 30 birthdays and you know all of the 
the weddings and things like that were happening when I'd had I got two small kids Mm. so I'd like leave them with my husband and then go away on these crazy kind of party weekends um yeah and so I had that that scare and then so I was like right I'm gonna stop everything um and looking now I know that I probably went into withdrawal because I you know I was hallucinating and shaking and um yeah um and that's when I kind of I wrote it all down for my husband um I was like I need you to take me to the doctor um but I need you to come because I can't explain everything Mm. um so I wrote down everything I wrote down you know because I was I was pretty suicidal I was pretty you know lost like I was scared of everything so I had my husband had to go and read this to the doctor which is quite intense (laughs) um yeah but you know um well it is what it is really Mm. and luckily my doctor was um a addiction counsellor as well as a paediatrician as well as a cbd (laughs) cp wow uh, cbt cbt yeah (laughs) um so yeah so he pretty much saved my life really yeah Um, sounds like a bit of a god job (laughs) yeah wow yeah yeah yeah, so i just i went started going to see him like two hours twice a week i go and see with with him he put me on antidepressants um and never really talked about my drinking at that time to be honest it was it was around all the survival state I was in really Mm. um and it was only through that kind of experience that I realized that actually alcohol probably wasn't helping the situation Um, so was that around the time that you started doing your own work from a psychotherapy psychology standpoint really working through that trauma and unpacking everything Mm, yeah and we weren't even we weren't even really talking about the trauma then to be honest that happened later at that time it was really just the burnout it was Mm. the depression it was you know coping with motherhood um and yeah getting my kind of getting a kind of a joy of life back um and managing and, and a lot of work around kind of you know my values and and who I wanted to be as a person and he was just incredibly helpful because he you know that non-judgmental lens that he was just like look you know like all the stuff that you were doing when you were 18 20 it's fine just you know okay it was a bit risky but that's what you do you know it's like pushing the boundaries it's like now you're 30 you know you're a mum of two it's it's not what you want to do it's not it, this isn't the right you know this is a transition period mm. and I was like oh okay okay I don't have to be this person yeah. anymore. you know it's like permission to go you've done enough raving and taking drugs like you can stop that now mm. um, and that's about as far as we got really and through that I was like okay maybe I could you know stop drinking or try and stop drinking but I mean it I couldn't at that point um so it took a bit longer before I could get there yeah and so can you tell me about that time then because you've been sober for over five years now what made the last time the very last time 
Um, um, I think I'd done a lot of work. So by that point, you know, I'd been back and forth, back and forth. I'd done a year, so I'd learned a lot about life without alcohol. So I had some kind of muscle memory around it. Um, I had, you know, I was sort of, was on medication, um, was going to therapy, had started trauma work. So I was kind of looking after myself at a different level. Um, and then we were on holiday in Spain and my son jumped in the swimming pool and hit his head. Um, and like I was, we'd never drank with the kids in the pool. And I just sat down and we were like, they're doing really well, you know. Yeah, maybe let's just have a glass of wine. We'd sit right next to the pool. We don't have to get in, we'll sit next to the pool. And I literally was there with a glass of wine in my hand, about to take a sip, and he jumped in, banged his head, blood everywhere. He's fine. It, he just cut his eye. Mm. But it was just that culmination of things was just like, whoa. And then, and I'd been struggling that summer. I'd been drinking every day, and it was just boring. Mm. It was so boring mm. to like wake up at four in the morning again and have a hangover. I was so done with it. And I think it was just that kind of, like, what what is it going to take, you know? Like, what? when am I going to... How many more chances am I going to take, mm. basically? And so I kind of woke... And I was like, if I wake up again at four in the morning, that's it, I'm done. And I did. So I was like, okay, that's it. Um, and I downloaded Annie Grace's... She'd, at that time, she had, like, a four-day challenge or something, workshop-free. Mm. And I did that for four days and that was enough. I mean, I'd read so much at that point and everything. Um, yeah, and thank thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Can I ask, mm. and just circling back to the antidepressants and the medication for a moment, it's not something that I, we've spoken about a lot on the podcast yet, uh, but it's part of my story as well. I went on anti-anxiety medication, which is also an antidepressant, um, about two years before I gave up drinking and it was really interesting because for me and I've since learned that when you drink on this particular medication it essentially neutralizes the effect anyway Mm -hmm. and so I was just in this cycle of anxiety and daily drinking and uh, but I know that for the short periods of time where I wasn't drinking it it really helped me and I stayed on that medication for another 12 months after getting sober until I felt like I was well enough to start trying to do life again without that additional support mm. can you tell me a little bit more about how it's played a role within your life yeah I mean I'm still on antidepressants now um and I have no um inclination to come off them to be honest um i kind of see them as part of my sober toolkit yeah. um maybe maybe there'll be a moment where i do but certainly experience has shown that there was a really strong narrative in my head that you know i needed to be fixed i needed to fix myself um and so you know i would stop drinking and then i'd be like right okay you know oh, i'm feeling a lot better three months later four months later okay yeah or, you know i must work myself off my medication because you know that's what i must do and then i do that and then i'd be something would switch in my head and i'd be drinking again and like 
you know, this is my story, I don't know about other people, but certainly for me, it just, yeah, it's always helped just to build a bridge with my mental health. Um, And I'm fine with that, (laughs) you know, I'm fine. And yeah, and I, and I definitely saw um, the difference of when I was, wasn't on them or when I was, you know, and yeah, maybe one day I'll stop taking them, but I'm, yeah, I don't have any particularly bad, I'm lucky, I don't have any side effects, and I just kind of think, you know, even if it's a placebo, it's like, <laughs> that's fine, it's, you know, I just, yeah. yeah, whatever keeps me sober is is good with me, really. That's exactly right, and I'm so glad you shared that, and that it's a different experience to my own, because it's such an important mm. example that no two journeys are the same, and so it's really important mm. that we all treat our individual recovery journeys the way that we need to with our own research our own support systems our own toolkits yeah now mandy i recently read something that you wrote about shame you said i can tell the whole truth because i no longer live in shame i no longer fear what i cannot change and i no longer wish i was different now this is such a powerful message of strength I'd love to know how did you get to this place where you were able to let go of the shame that you've been carrying for all these years throughout your addiction? Yeah, I'm pretty proud of that, I've got to say. Um, I was like, did I write that good on me? A little moment of genius. Um, Yeah, I think letting go of shame is is the key. I just, I think I just... Well, part of it is doing trauma recovery work and working as a trauma-informed coach in the sense that I learned about parts. So I learned that, you know, we we are not our thoughts and we are not always our experience. Like, that was a part of me. Everything that happened was a part of me. It was an adapted part of me that was, you know, surviving or or you know creating chaos in in a way that that was all that they knew at the time so part part of it was kind of identifying you know who I was at that person and really connecting with that person like okay I was a teenager so that adapted part of me as a teenager what was going on for them what did they know what didn't they know at the time what would I tell them now if I could you know and how can I just love on them really hard and and tell them that I'm really sorry um that they were struggling um and so you know and as a kid okay so how old was that part of me okay um and and what was going on for them then and what did they know and what didn't they know and and what would I like to say to them now and just really kind of working through every one of those shame stories that I had and really just holding space for that part of me and and just going right okay you know and and would you do that now no of course you wouldn't you know sweetheart you know talking kindly to that part of me like it's it's okay you know it's it's just it's just what it was and and yeah you know there, there's regret and that that's that's okay because that means that you you've learned from it and you don't want to do the same things mm. and I think it's just that work of being a nurturing parent to yourself and just, you know, really showing up for yourself and, and just and holding that space for that, that, that experience and, 
and just going you know what it's, it's all right it's okay you know and 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 talking about it too and not from the the wound but from the scar right from you know from a, a space of being healed from it um yeah and I and I mean it was it was a long process but as soon as I started saying it out out loud whether it was to a therapist or to my journal or to you know another person in recovery it just lost its power a little bit because they were like oh man you know me too gosh this happened to me and I'd be like oh wow okay (laughs) you know they're just like oh okay well you know I'm sorry that that sounds like it was really hard you know and just to have that reflective experience with people. Mm. Um, yeah. The resounding impact that I have from what you've just shared then is this, this sense of compassion that you now have for yourself, which mm. I imagine didn't exist throughout all of those years that you were drinking. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know... It, it's not my fault but it is my responsibility like that's you know that's a hard statement but it's a very true statement in the sense of like you know I cannot I cannot go and change any of those things you know and I was you know a victim of my circumstance and of my knowledge and of my experience at the time you know yeah, I can beat myself up about that I should have known better, but I didn't, mm. <laughs> I didn't. Mm. So what am I going to do with that, you know? And and all of that is doing is, is, is not providing me with the space to be able to move forward and then help others, you know? If I'm not looking after myself and if I'm in that state, then how am I going to break the generational cycles of shame and trauma in my family? Like, how am I going to show up for my kids? And and do things different or for my clients or you know have an impact in the world which is meaningful um so it's it's often that thing that we think if we forgive ourselves there's some sort of you know it's selfish or it's there's something but it's not you know it's it's like when you can be compassionate to yourself then you can show compassion to others Mm -hmm. and that's where we heal you know the very wounded world that we live in you know Mm. Um, and you see people different right you know when you're in recovery it's you walk through the world looking at people in a different way because it's like wow I have no idea what you've been through um you know so yeah it's a nice it's a nicer way to live right yeah with compassion (laughs) I couldn't agree more yeah can we change gears for a moment I recently saw a post that you shared on Instagram about alcohol use disorder and the danger of having such a black and white rhetoric. So can you elaborate on this for our listeners? Because I feel the same way about labels. And I think like we shared before, I don't, it's each to their own. Everybody's recovery journey is different. And, you know, for me, I identify as an alcoholic. That works for me and that helps to keep me sober. For other people, that doesn't work. Alcohol use disorder is another one of these labels. So I'd love you just to mm. unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah. Um, as I mean, I, I completely agree. It's like it's, it's individual choice. Um, so alcoholism hasn't been a diagnostic term since the 1980s but it's still very much used in kind of common language um alcoholic addict um and 
it tends to put people in two camps. So you either are or you aren't. So you either are an addict or an alcoholic or you're not, you're a normal drinker. And what we know about kind of alcohol use disorder or addiction is that it's progressive and it's a scale. Um, so it's not you either are, you aren't, it's how, where are you on that mm. spectrum? Um, and the, the difficulty with the kind of old school language around, you know, um, alcoholism is it tends to lead people to only getting help when they are at rock bottom. So it's only like, I have to be that bad, I have to be that stereotype, or I have to be that type of person, mm -hmm. or I'm a normal drinker and I should be able to moderate it. You know, if we can change that narrative to start talking about the spectrum, mm -hmm. where are you on the spectrum? You know, and I mean, it's it's written in, in what's so frustrating, it's written in documentation, you know, in the World Health Organization, they talk about, you know, alcohol use being, from hazardous to harmful to um, dependency. So they talk about it as a spectrum. Um, and there's different kind of categorization. Even when you do yeah, any of the kind of tests online, it will be like, how many of these do you, you know, yes. identify with? Mm. Um, and the more people that can, because we all have that, right? We all have that moment where we're like, mm, I'm not sure that this is right. And if there was a at, at that interjecture, okay, well, being, you know, not drinking's fine. It's actually quite nice. Don't worry about it. Do you know what I mean? It's fine. Yeah. Like, life's not going to end, you know. It's actually quite quite good. Um, and you'll be okay. And, you know, and have that positive sort of sobriety messaging going on. You know, then we're going to help people to when they've got so much more agency over their their own experience you know it's like from where I was at different points in my my drinking journey I had different amounts of agency and different you know that kind of early intervention if someone had said to me at that point like don't worry come you know it's fine you don't have to do this anymore mm. I would never have got to that dark dark place and so yeah and I mean, if, if it's something that feels empowering to you, then great. If it's not, then what, what, how do you describe it? And I, I had that with a client, you know, she'd had this, she'd been to treatment, she, you know, her family called her an alcoholic. She, you know, she'd been to treatment three times and she just, that, it didn't make sense to her. Mm. You know, and so on our first call, I was like, okay. She, so she was sort of saying, you know, so I'm an alcoholic, but she just was kind of, you could see in her face, she was like questioning it, not sure. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm curious because, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, you don't seem 100% convinced about that yeah. label. And she was like, oh no, not really. That's what everyone says I am. I was like, okay, well, what do you say? you know she, how do you describe it and she was like well I have a problematic relationship with alcohol I was like okay well that's that's where we're at then you know mm. just and then she was like ah you could see it was just like okay <laughs> take off that shackles of that mm. you know that that thing and just feel comfortable in my own experience and yeah so it's, it's really important for me that 
people can choose, you know, not be labelled, but choose what labels feel or what language feels empowering to them. Absolutely. And I think if somebody's going to be more receptive to treatment by not using a particular label, then that's the right path for them. On the flip side, for somebody who is able to identify, like you just said, be empowered by that, then that's the path they choose. And again, it's not a one size fits all. Thank you so much for explaining that a little bit more for us. Okay, Mandy, can you tell me now, what are the best parts about being sober for you? Um, oh gosh. Well, I think my, you know, when it, when I really sort of bore down into why I wanted to make this choice you know what was my why it was around motherhood and showing up as um, a parent that I wanted to be you know I'd never in my dreams imagined that I would be that type of mum and I just didn't want to be that mum so yeah it's the relationship I have with my kids that I'm more patient, that I'm actually more fun. Like, because I was controlling alcohol so much, I become really uptight. Um, and I'm much more silly now. I, like, don't really care about many things. Um, and that's in itself a brilliant thing because, you know, I had so little confidence in myself. I just was so ashamed of myself. Um, yeah, just, I don't know, connecting those moments of pure serenity when you connect with your experience um you know just the light the 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 breeze that i'm just looking out the window now you know and just being able to be connected to to the outside world and and not be kind of yeah numbed out from it Mm. um and you know and it's given me a career right as well you know so like who knew I, I i never in a million years would have dreamed thought that i'd write two books <laughs> you know or, or or had a podcast or you know or become a coach or found you know a, a job which i feel is i'm good at and is meaningful to me none of that would have happened if i'd carried on drinking yeah i don't know any so. other sort of life experience where people their lives change so drastically than getting than getting into recovery <laughs> it's just incredible like the possibilities truly are endless yeah it's amazing so what do you do today to maintain your recovery um well i stay connected with with my community so i have you know lots of friends who are in recovery um i try to look after myself um not get too stressed out um and just yeah keep my life as simple as possible really um because the biggest trigger is is stress Mm. i think so um and being able yeah. to tune in and know when that's happening. And like you just shared at the top of the show, you know, you had too much on your plate, you paired it back, mm. like being able to be really in tune with how you are responding to life in any given moment. I know for me, that was a really difficult thing for a really long time, but now just slowing down in recovery, using things like meditation, just to connect back to self mm. and really check in each and every day, journaling as well, as you mentioned, how am I feeling today? And then being able to adapt based off that is is really powerful yeah I think it you know it has to come 
before everything else really you know um and and that doesn't mean that I neglect other areas of my life or but my life has to be driven or designed to protect my sobriety Mm. um so you know that's luckily I yeah I've done enough work to have that insight of like no matter what you know I I'm nothing will jeopardize it Mm. even if it's my you know the things I really want to do it's just like it has to come first Mm. um and that's that overwhelm that stress that anxiety that you know taking on too much um those are all huge red flags for me Mm. um Mm. yeah I'm exactly the same now I love to finish off asking each of my guests this final question and that is Mandy, what are your three non-negotiables for living happy, joyous, and free in recovery? Um, continued support. So be that, you know, therapy, groups, um, friendships, fellowship, um, looking after my nervous system. So yeah, stress, you know, doing exercise, eating well, sleeping those are lots of things um and (laughs) yeah uh never drinking again Mm. that's just you know it's like it's not an option um and yeah that's yeah i mean that's That's a that's a pretty solid list yeah i'll i'll take some of those absolutely Mandy, you are such a wealth of knowledge and you've got such a powerful story. I can't thank you enough for sharing your time with us today. If our listeners would like to find you, where should they go? Um, Mostly I hang out on Instagram, Mandy Manners Coach, um, or my website is mandymanners.com. Or you can read uh, one of our books. So we've got two books. There's Love Yourself Sober, which is a self-care guide to busy mums that's all around motherhood and the second book is love your sober year which has just come which is seasonal self-care so it's all around connecting with the natural kind of cycles of life and how that can support our recovery Mm, brilliant i'll make sure that i pop all of that information in the episode show notes Mandy, we say here on the show that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. I can't thank you enough for being part of this story, sharing your story and really making a difference in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.